Boy, leaving California for Grand Rapids, um, or it was the Grand Rapids, did you say? Michigan? Yeah. yeah, basically heading to Jerusalem for Reformed churches, so I'm sure you won't have any problem there. Um, good to see you all, good to be here with you this morning in worship. And uh, last week we began a new series in Genesis, uh, and this week uh, I want us to consider this question. Basically, it really summarizes what the opening two uh, chapters of Genesis are about. The question is this. How did we get here? That's the question. How did we get here? You may have noticed we live in a world. Uh, there's stars, planets, galaxies, trees, seas, puffin muffins, people, you. How did we get here? Uh, that's the question. That's what we're going to uh, try and answer this morning. And I need to start off by issuing a warning that this morning is going to be very different than... Uh, what we normally do here on a Sunday morning. And, and by that I mean our normal approach on a Sunday morning is to take a portion of Scripture and then to carefully unpack it and hopefully apply it to our lives. And that approach comes out of our strong conviction that this book is the very Word of God. And we are committed to making that our priority when we gather together. Uh, but and maybe a bit surprisingly, that's not going to be our approach uh, this morning. And I know that even as I say that, this will be more than a, an annoyance for some of you. And, and if you're among those, I, I recognize that. And, and I ask for your patience with me. And if you're visiting this morning, I do want you to know that this is not normally uh, what we do. In almost 25 years of ministry, I've never done something quite like this and probably uh, won't ever do it again. Uh, but I also want you to know that I've, I've prayerfully considered this over a long while, actually probably about a year um, in thinking about this series, and I'm approaching this morning uh, intentionally in this way because I am convinced of the need for us not to overlook an obvious issue and to explicitly address it head on before we properly jump into the assumptions of Genesis 1 and 2, which we'll begin doing next week. I'm increasingly convinced of the need for us to tackle this issue directly, especially, especially for our young people who are growing up with and being bombarded with completely secular assumptions about origins, with a worldview that is counter, utterly counter to this book, with a worldview that scoffs and even mocks the story of origins revealed in this book. And far too often we've seen faith shaken, if not destroyed and abandoned, when it comes up against, is confronted by those who challenge with questions like, oh, how can any thinking person choose God and faith over science? Because there's this fashionable and persistent idea today of a necessary struggle between scientific belief and Christian belief, and you can't hold the two together. And, and it particularly comes down to the flashpoint issue of rival stories about how the world came to be as it is. And so many of you will have seen this on uh, the back of people's cars, um, the Darwin fish. And the Darwin fish is a way of taking the ancient Christian symbol of the fish and saying, let's give the fish feet, 
Do you see what we did there? We made it an evolutionary symbol and then put the word Darwin in the middle. And you've seen this probably uh, on the back of people's cars or elsewhere. And what the Darwin fish is obviously claiming is that the theory of evolution has made Christianity untenable, impossible to hold as a thinking person. And for me, perhaps the most pithy objection along this line is this quote from Carl Sagan. He said, it is far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion, however satisfying and reassuring. And as that quote stands, I think it's entirely true. I think that's absolutely true. I don't want to live in delusion, however satisfying it might be. I want to grasp the universe as it really is. The question, of course, is how do you know what's the delusion and what's the reality? And my argument, I suppose, as we go through this morning, <coughs> would be that the virgin birth of the cosmos, the atheist Carl Sagan's belief that you have nothing, 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 and then suddenly out of nowhere an entire universe appears, that's actually the delusion and that belief in God is the reality. And we'll build that a little bit as we go over the next 30 minutes or so. And hopefully you'll see uh, how we've got there. And so what we are trying to do this morning is answer the question, how did we get here? Without starting off with, well, we all know, of course, that Christianity is true. Therefore, this is the right answer. Don't assume that the Bible is true. Because most people in Sonoma County don't think it is. Just start, just by observing the world around you and asking, how did we get here? God made? Chance? Luck? Don't know? Aliens? How did we get here? If you ask that question to most scientifically literate people in Sonoma County today, they'll respond probably by telling you that many billions of years ago there was a big bang and then evolution began about three and a half billion years ago. And we're the result. And even if we were to grant that assumption to be true, I still want to ask the question, how did we get here? How did the Big Bang even happen? What caused it? When there was this massive explosion billions of years ago, if that's what you think, why did it form a, 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 a universe with galaxies and stars and planets and trees and seas and puffins and muffins and people? How's that possible? Why did it? It could have caused anything. And it didn't. It caused a universe where there's people like you that are possible. How did we get here? The whole point, if you know anything about the Big Bang Theory, is the universe is expanding. We go back in time and, and, and see that it must have started, it must have been very, very small, about this big. And now it's very, very large, about that big. And there was a time when the universe was not. So how did we get here? It didn't used to be here. 13.8 billion years ago, scientists will tell you, there wasn't a universe like this. Didn't have galaxies in it or planets or anything, let alone life. So how did it get here? And I want to argue this morning that we've basically got two rival stories about how the world uh, came to be as it is. Now, there are more than that, of course. There's the Buddhist one, there's the Hindu one, the Islamic one. There are lots of others, but I'm just going to, for the, for the sake of today, just let's 
paint two stories, the Christian one and the atheist one. And the Christian story, the first explanation how the world came to be is, is, is something like this. There is an eternal, infinite, good, loving creator who is the ground of being of everything else that exists. He's eternal. In that sense, by definition, he's uncreated. So there's no who made God question to answer because God has always been. That's what we, that's what we mean by the definition of the very word. And that God is eternal and infinite and is the creator. The, ex, the atheist explanation, if you like, is you know, that kind of being does not exist and never has and everything we see, everything we see is the result of impersonal, undirected forces of chance and time. Everything there is, stars and, and planets, hearts and eyes, love and emotion, everything is simply the result of undirected forces of chance and time. And those two stories, I'm going to suggest, are the main players in this discussion. And my claim is that our current understanding of science fits better than the f- with the first story, the Christian one, than with the second story, the atheist one. And that might sound absurd, absurd and impossible to try and show, but I'll do my best. And, and I say that for four reasons. There are four things that I think that we know about the world scientifically for, from what we, what we call general revelation that point us in favor of. They don't prove it, but they point us in favor of the Christian story. And the first reason I say that is because of the existence of something from nothing. And this is the idea of what we might call the virgin birth of the cosmos, which is the the idea that the universe created itself out of nothing, and everything we currently see has appeared out of nowhere for no particular reason, suddenly 13.7 billion years ago. And I think that claim is so hard to defend that it nudges us in favor of the Christian story. So if you like, the atheist picture looks like this. 30 billion years ago, there's nothing. 20 billion years ago, there's nothing. 20 billion years ago, nothing. 15 billion years ago, nothing. 13.7 billion years ago, suddenly, and for no particular reason, with no creator or design or outside agency at all, an entire universe explodes into being from a single point. That's the claim, right? It's not caused or, or, or prompted by anything outside of itself. From nothing suddenly comes everything which is why I call it the virgin birth of the cosmos. Incidentally, for a lot of people who aren't Christians, they'll say, the the virgin birth, (coughs) how ridiculous. I want to say, that's actually what you believe about the uh, universe. And I think it's a real stretch. In the Christian view, if the eternal infinite creator view is right, the existence of something from nothing is not at all improbable. Because we have an infinite God, creator, who is the ground of being, of everything else. And he can decide whenever and whatever he wants. And he's all-powerful. He can do whatever he likes. Creating a universe out of nothing is no big deal. But in the atheist view, the, the sudden appearance of something from nothing is a problem. It's something that people have to come up with more and more elaborate models to try and explain. And, and they might be right, 
but they require so many, so much, so many ifs, buts, and, and leaps into the unknown. And I think that simply taking at face value the idea that there is a world that suddenly appeared billions of years ago is in itself something that would absolutely nudge me in favor of the Christian explanation as opposed to the atheist one. So the existence of something from nothing is the first scientific reality we know that would point me in favor of the Christian view of the world. The second one is the emergence of order from chaos. So what you have from this singular point is an explosion of enormous dissolution of energy, and you would expect it to just scatter and dissipate all over the, all over the whatever there is, and, and, general, and gradually fragment and, and unravel and form less and less ordered things. Instead, what you have is it forms more and more ordered things, and it forms planets and galaxies, and then eventually single-celled organisms, and then eventually people like you. And that process bucks the trend of everything else we know. And although you can't prove that it didn't happen, it again lends a lot of weight to the Christian story than to the atheist one. In other words, it's saying that we were just incredibly lucky, and we still are. There was an explosion. It could have resulted in anything, and it ended up happening to result in a universe capable of supporting life like ours. It might not have, but it did, and that's why we're here to see it. So Francis Collins, uh, he just retired as the director of the National Institutes of Health. Um, so he was Fauci's boss, and uh, and, and prior to that role, uh, he was the director of the he, Human Genome uh, program, uh, program where, where they mapped the human genome, which means he is cleverer than any of us. And he said the following. This is, this is his summary of the scientific side of it. He said, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants or physical numbers, which he then lists, that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe would have act- would, uh, couldn't actually have come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce or come together. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. Right? That's the scientific statement that is being made. We have 15 independent numbers that all have to be exactly what they are to a very highly, to a very highly specific degree or the universe like ours would not be possible. And consequently, it looks like it's not simply a, a, a question of blind chance that they are what they are. And the best way I know of illustrating this is to use the atheist story for a minute and, uh, and say that we've now got no God, no designer, just chance and time, it's like playing a game of gigantic, you know, galactic roulette with 15 wheels. And every one of these wheels has a million numbers on it, okay? And so, so you come to the first wheel and it's got a million numbers on it, not the 36 or whatever it is that, that they are. And, and for, the, for the sake of argument, just to suspend disbelief and there are a million numbers on this roulette wheel. And, and, and you go and you, and you spin that wheel. The, the numbers on this wheel, let's say it's the number of the gravitational constant. And you, you know, and it, and it stops and lands 
on exactly. That's the only place in the million values that they could have landed, and it's exactly in the right place to support planets. And you go, well, that's lucky. Okay, on to the next one. And we swing the next one, and it goes, and, 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 and this is the strong nuclear constant, and it lands right, right again. It's, it's the only place it could have. If you had been... If, if, you had, if you had swung the first one and it was right, and then the second one and it was wrong, no planets. And then you do the next one and the next one, and you do that 14 times. And then you come to the 15th one, and the 15th wheel doesn't have a million numbers on it. It doesn't even have a million million numbers on it. It has 10 to the power of 60 numbers on it. That is, that is one with 60 zeros after it. In other words, this wheel is larger than you can possibly imagine. And you're on a good run. You've got one in a million 14 times, and the 15 one has got 10 to the power of 60 numbers on it, and you swing it, and, you, and it goes, you know, yes. You know, everyone goes, yes, and then it goes, and you go, no. You know, it, it, we're off by one, and because of that, there's no life, there's no planets, no universe, and we have to go back to the beginning and have to have that same run of, of luck only with the right one landing on the final wheel. And that's the sort of scale of odds we're talking about in Francis Collins' words of the universe emerging by chance. The odds are astronomically low given the atheist story that you have a universe like this. Given the Christian story, the odds aren't low at all. God speaks. God says, I want a universe like this. Off we go. Given the atheist story, it's immensely unlikely. And of this, I want to read a quote from another guy uh, called Sir John Polkinghorne, um, which I think is the sort of name that when you're given it as a child means you're going to be an eminent scientist no matter what you do. Uh, and he was the master of Queen's College, Cambridge, a fellow of the Royal Society, wrote a lot of books about science. Again, just means he was a lot cleverer than us. And he said this, which is about that last wheel that I've just mentioned, the, the 15th wheel. And, and there's an amusing turn of phrase in here uh, that will lead you to know whether, you, uh, whether or not you are stupid. And, and unfortunately, puts most of us on the stupid side, uh, stupid side of the equation. It's quite fun. For us to be possible, he says, requires a balance between the effects of expansion and contraction, which at the very early epoch in the universe's history, the Planck time, has to differ from equality by not more than 1 in 10 to the power of 60. That's 1 with 60 zeros after it. The numerates will marvel at such a degree of accuracy. Okay, so for all of you people who are there now stroking your beards going, ah, oh, I marvel, I marvel at this number, you are numerates. The rest of you, cretins, simpletons. And, 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 and so he says, if he, he will now say, for the simple among you, I'm just going to explain. I mean, it's quite patronizing, but I think quite funny. For the non-numerates, I will borrow an illustration. You think, thank, thank you, John. I'm so glad that my non-numerate pastor, my non-numerate congregation will now understand. For the non-numerate, in, in, in other words, for those who can't count, he says, I'll bring a, an illustration of Paul Davis of what the accuracy means. In other words, I'm going to draw you a picture. It is the same as aiming at a target an inch wide, the other side of the observable universe, 20,000 million light years away, and hitting the mark. Now, all the non-numerate people are now marveling, aren't they? You're, you're marveling. You know, I, I mean, I don't marvel at the number 
until I see the illustration. That is staggering. And he's saying that's just the 15th number, 20,000 million light years away, other side of the universe, an inch wide target, and we hit it by chance. That's the scale of odds we're talking about for just the last number, not all the others, just one of those 15 roulette wheels having landed where it did. In other words, it doesn't happen every day. And it's from numbers like that that mean I would, looking at those at the two stories, the Christian one and the atheist one, I would say that requires a leap of, uh, of faith into the unknown and so many ifs and buts and so much faith in a way that I, I don't know if I could jump there. Whereas the Chris, Christian story, which has a creator, it makes absolutely perfect sense within a particular setup. And that should provoke questions. How did we get here? In other words, it doesn't look like blind chance is enough. It doesn't look like total luck is sufficient. The odds against planets and stars emerging out of a big bang look ridiculously long. It sounds like something or someone is making these numbers fit to make life possible. That's just instinctively the way most of us look at those numbers and think, it sounds like something's up there. Hang on a minute, you know, that kind of thing. Stephen Hawking, okay, wasn't a Christian. Died a few years ago, had motor neuron disease, was in a wheelchair, spoke through a voice box. And he said the following about the Big Bang and the chance of life. He said, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. He subsequently went one further. In the same book, he said, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of, God, of a God who intended to create beings like us. He wasn't, a, he wasn't a Christian, but he was just saying, you look at the numbers, you can't with a brain look at it and say, oh, it's just luck. That's just lunacy, Stephen Hawking would say. That's silly. I think there's religious implications. It's, it's, it's hard to explain how it happened without a God, he says. And, and my favorite quote, or my favorite illustration of this whole thing comes from two famous, famous atheists, Richard Dawkins, quoting Douglas Adams. Uh, Richard Dawkins, um, on the inside cover of his book, The God Delusion, quotes Douglas Adams, another famous atheist who wrote The, the Hitchhiker's Guide and so on. And he quotes him saying this, it isn't it enough to believe that a garden's beautiful without having to, having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it too? And I say, yes, it is enough to see that a garden's beautiful without thinking there, there are fairies at the bottom of it too. When I look at a garden, it doesn't make me believe in fairies. It does make me believe in gardeners. So that's the third reason. So we start with something from nothing and then order from chaos. Thirdly, life from non-living matter. In the illustration, often uh, uses the one of the monkey at the typewriter. Okay, so we have a monkey sitting at a typewriter, and the claim here is basically, if you give chance and time long enough, don't worry about it, you'll get life. Yeah, it's strange, yeah, it's wonderful, but leave matter 600 million years on Earth, and you will have life. So the monkey's sitting at the typewriter, and chances are, eventually he produces the complete works of Shakespeare. So, you know, what, what's the problem? You just leave him long enough and you'll be fine. And at one stro keystroke a second, um, the monkey might well eventually get the complete works of Shakespeare, but he doesn't manage to do it in 600 million years. 
And what, and what someone has uh, recently has, has done is they ran the numbers uh, that instead of just of, of the whole works of Shakespeare, they just ran the numbers of how long it would take a monkey typing at one keystroke a second to type to be or not to be. That is the question, right? On average, how long does it, is it going to take my monkey friend at one keystroke a second? I, I don't know how long you would think it would be. Do you think it would be less or more than 600 million years, which is the the period life on earth is supposed to have merged, uh, emerged within. Well, they ran the numbers for to be or not to be. That is the question. And it takes 12.6 trillion, 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 trillion years to type that phrase. And a DNA string, which you have to have li- the life that we have, it, it's not a sent- sentence worth of information. A DNA string has got as much information as the Encyclopedia Britannica. Right? So, so we're saying that emerged completely, you know, some, or, or some, something that complex emerged by chance, undirected, within 600 million years. Again, it's mathematically possible, but it's so incredibly unlikely that it would have that it tilts me in favor of the Christian story in which God creating life is simply a matter of him saying, let there be. And there was. In the atheist story, that's much harder to explain. And the fourth thing that tips me that way, and this is the final thing, is the the emergence of consciousness out of non-consciousness. And this really is the question, why do you think? You know, why is it that there's such a thing as a mind? Why 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 do we write songs and poems and worship gods and have conversations and understand language. Why do we do that? From, from an atheist point of view, um, the, the problem of consciousness is freely admitted. All right? So Richard Dawkins, uh, again, he admits in The God Delusion, he says, well, yes, there, the, I know there's a lot of difficult steps here in the development of the emerging of planets and then life. And he says, the development of the eukaryotic cell is even more momentous and, and difficult and statistically improbable step than the formation of life. And then he admits, and the emergence of consciousness is another major gap whose bridging is of the same order of improbability. Which is basically a way of saying, yes, even if you got the first three things, something from nothing, order from chaos, life from non-living matter, that's all remarkable, but it's just as remarkable, if not more so, to think of how consciousness emerged from the non-conscious, non-living matter. In other words, even leading atheist scientists admit consciousness emerging in the universe's history is staggeringly improbable. Once more, though, if you have an infinite creator God who loves and wants relationship with his creation and and created a, a being who is able to think and reason and deduce and use language and write poetry and worship him, it's in no way improbable. And so for me, those four things, the existence of something out of nothing, order from chaos, life from non-living matter, and consciousness from non-consciousness, those four things lean me in favor of the Christian version of the story rather than the atheist one. Generally in life, if you find things that are finely tuned and fit for purpose, we conclude that there's a designer, a creator with intelligence and order. So if I take this microphone here, 
And I just found this microphone standing there somewhere in the field and I come upon it. I could conclude that there had been an explosion in a nearby metal and parts factory and it had caused a microphone. And it was very unlikely, but it could happen. That is one conclusion I could draw. The second conclusion I could draw is that somebody built it like that. I think instinctively most of us know that the second of those options is more likely than the first. We can't prove that it wasn't a result of an explosion, and we might as well give up trying now. We cannot prove to somebody that there is a creator God. Knowledge simply doesn't work that way. You can provide evidence for it, but you cannot prove it. But I think you can say that there are implications of what, we're, of what you're telling me that you believe about the origin of the world. So how did we get here? Well, the existence of a creator, to my mind, is the most compelling answer because of the very unlikeliness of the alternative. The alternative is just too extraordinary. It doesn't quite add up. It might be true, but it doesn't sound very likely. Now, that, none of that proves that the, the creator is the God of the Bible. It just doesn't. We can't demonstrate the likelihood of this Christian God yet at this stage. For that, we have to ask loads more questions. Richard Dawkins, <coughs> he says it's possible. Uh, he, he, he says it's possibly a superhuman designer, right? It could be, you know, it could be a superhuman, which is sort of implies one like me, only bigger. I don't know. That's a terrifying thought. Or some atheists are more specific than that. They, they would say, well, superhuman designer, maybe, but I'm going to pin it down. Um, I'm going to say, like Francis Crick does, aliens. He, he said, quote, life on earth may have begun when aliens from another planet sent a rocket ship containing spores to seed the earth. Francis Crick is the discoverer of the double uh, helix structure of DNA, and he thinks life comes from aliens. In other words, you could look at the evidence and come away and say, I think it's aliens. Because I see intelligence here, where, where, uh, here which I can't otherwise explain, but I don't want to believe in God, so maybe it's alien. It does, of course, raise a question, which many of you are now thinking, who made the aliens? But that's another question for another day. Or, we have a necessary, eternal, all-powerful, sovereign God. You have a, a superhuman designer, you have aliens, you have an all-powerful God. These are the, pretty much the only three choices you have if you believe the universe was created. So we have to choose between, in the beginning, a superhuman created the heavens and the earth, or in the beginning, aliens created the heavens and the earth, or Genesis 1 verse 1, which was read by the Apollo 8 astronauts as they came around the moon for the first time and saw the earth rise in the 60s, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, they read. They said, wow, look at that. Even Richard Dawkins remarked the following in a debate a number of years ago. He said, you could persuade me that there was a creator who designed everything, but this is incompatible with a God who cares about your sin, what you do with your genitals, or what you think about. Translation, I wouldn't have a problem with God if he didn't have a problem with sin. You see, ultimately, questions like this 
aren't settled by science alone. We don't make decisions whether or not to believe in God purely on the basis of science. We come to that conclusion on the basis of of a lot of things, including science and history and philosophy and beauty and art and meaning and love and story and poem and all sorts of things. But if all you had was your observing faculties and your scientific knowledge, you'd conclude that there's really only two ways of explaining this universe, luck or a creator. And the first one just doesn't pass muster. So how do we get here? I tell you, it's a very important question. If there is a creator God, it matters enormously. If there is a creator God, we have to be prepared for anything. If there's a creator God, miracles might well happen. I remember years ago reading a very good book on the resurrection by a non-Christian academic who was one of the world's leading New Testament scholars. His name is Geza Vermes. And, and he wrote a book just called The Resurrection. Fascinating book. Non-Christian, looks at the, all the evidence, comes away and says, yep, the early church really did believe that Jesus uh, raised from the dead. Yes, the tomb was definitely empty. On Sunday, the 9th of April, AD 30, there was an empty tomb where they had buried him two days before. Yes, lots of people reported seeing him alive a few days later. Yes, all the rival explanations given for that fact are ridiculous. And he goes through them one at a time, and he says, none of these work. But he says, I still don't believe he rose from the dead because it's not scientific. Now, in and of itself, that statement might make sense until you ask the question, how did we get here? And suddenly, if there is a creator God, you cannot hide behind the phrase, it's not scientific, to say that you don't need to to study whether or not the resurrection of Jesus happened. You can't hide behind it and say, do you know what? Jesus' claims to forgive sins, walk on water, raise the dead. He made those claims, but I know he can't have because, because of modern science. You can't hide behind that anymore because suddenly as you stand back and say, but, but if there is a creator God, which of these two, items, two options we have looked at that actually looks to be the stronger one, then maybe he can. Maybe there is a God who created the whole world and maybe horrors of horrors, he might care about my sin and what I thought about he might even be the kind of God who would raise the dead and walk on the water. He might be uh, walk on water. He might be the God who would even embody himself in human flesh to save the world. He might be a God who had a purpose for our lives and wanted to fix suffering and injustice. He might be a God who would come as a human being, born as a baby, turn the world upside down, rise from the dead, and conquer death eternally. He might be. How could we know? So the question, how did we get here, is a very important one to ask. If there's a God, if there's a creator God, and he's powerful enough to create 10 to the power of 20 stars, then awe is an appropriate reaction. In fact, it's inappropriate to stand in worship with your hands figuratively in your pockets in front of a God like that, isn't it? I don't mean, I don't mean that's a, a sin or anything. I just mean, you know, joyful, joyful, we adore you. That, that's just inappropriate. 
if it's true. If it isn't, we shouldn't be here at all. But if there's a creator God who's made 10 million, 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 million stars and who is sustaining those stars right now and upholding the universe by the word of his power, we really ought to be taking him seriously. Because the God who created the universe, he he presumably is going to be quite scary when we meet him. We're going to need some help. He's going to be an awe-inspiring God who is, is, is so much greater than us and, and that we would be quivering. We're going to need some help. We're going to need an advocate. We're going to need someone to say, hey, huge gap between you little person and big God. I'm going to help you bridge that gap. I'm going to come down and show you how it's done. I'm going to come and do it for you and give it to you as a gift. Maybe that, maybe that is the way the world works. And interestingly, if that's true, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there are actually only three world religions that can be true. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And all three of them agree on what happened next, which is the story of Genesis 1 to 11, which we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks and months. How did we get here? If a creator... And if the Creator, is the Christ, as Christians believe and have done so for 2,000 years, that that Creator God became flesh to rescue the planet and conquer death, it couldn't possibly make a bigger difference. It's the most important thing that's ever happened. And it's totally pivotal for our lives. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet wonder of wonders you do. You care deeply for us. As we've reflected and considered who you are in your triune being last Sunday. We are mindful that all that we see and all that we are is an overflow, an outflow of, of, of you, the triune God, in your consuming love for one another. And you, you are sharing God. And out of that flowed all of creation. And we marvel at that. We rejoice and wonder as we, we think about all that you have created and how much you care for us to rescue and redeem us to make us your own. And so, as we come before you now, as we come to the table that has been prepared for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, we are mindful of your majesty and and, and magnificence, your transcendence, but you are a God who, even in your transcendence, you're a God who would become imminent, a God who would enter into human flesh and invite us. To, to rescue and redeem and then invite us into fellowship. And that's what this table, we, we see and experience a God who has won us to himself and a God who invites us and desires to give, have fellowship with us. And so as we come to this table, we pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts, that we would receive gladly the, the body and blood of the Lord Jesus as he is offered to us. For wonder of wonders, You have cared for the sons of man. 
You have cared for us. You've loved us. And oh Lord, we love you as a result. And we, and we say along with the psalmist, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.